so thankful for those who minister to the body by leading us in worship and engaging in worship. We could not choose a song any better than that one. Uh, as we think of Philippians 1 and verse 21 this morning. If you'd like to take notes, there, is, uh, there are some sermon notes in the bulletin. You can uh, follow along in that way. And I'll be reading from the ESV, preaching from that uh, this morning, in case you're wondering as well. Last few weeks, I have tried to turn our attention to a discussion of a mindset that advances the gospel of Jesus Christ. Uh, specifically, we have discussed how we might advance the gospel through bearing affliction or through our own physical death. And admittedly, these past two sermons haven't been feel-good sermons. It's not a health and wealth sort of message. But today, positively, we're going to look at something else that God might use to advance the gospel of Jesus Christ. In a positive way, he may use our life to advance the gospel. At Philippians chapter 1, verses 21 through 26, at this point in, in the letter, I imagine Paul, as he's writing this, looking down at his own shackled wrists or meditating in quiet prayer in his house imprisonment in Rome. It's quite evident to me that Paul is contemplative. Um, As when you start looking through this text, you you understand that Paul is considering two options. He's considering life and death. And the way the text goes, he keeps going back and forth. He's, He's turning over these two possibilities in his mind. Uh, Look with me, for instance, in verse 21. I'm just going to draw your attention to when he talks about life and then death. Verse 21, he says, For to me to live is Christ. Paul might live if he does. That's Jesus. But then right after that. But to die is gain. Life, death. Verse 22. If I am to live in the flesh. Go to the middle of verse 23. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. But then keep reading, verse 24, but to remain in the flesh. See, he's contemplating life and death. He's turning them over in his his mind, and he's, he's really thinking through these things. I think it's safe to say that the, predic- the predicament that he finds himself in in Rome has caused him to spend much time considering the true meaning of life and death. But um, contrary to the Apostle Paul, many of us don't really like to spend much time in contemplation. And perhaps there are many of us who suffer from a lack of anything like a sustained thought or a reasoned approach to life and death. Many people today fill every possible moment for reflection that they have with anything that they can come up with. So they fill these quiet times with music. It doesn't matter what kind of music or genre or style, just turn it on. So I don't have to spend so much time thinking about what's really important. Or with TV, where show after show distracts us and almost brings us to the place where we're numb with amusement. We'd rather do that than spend time thinking about what is truly important about life or death. Or we fill our times with video games. Hours of brain-deadening, completely profitless time. So that we even struggle to listen to preaching for 30 minutes without some sort of distraction. Okay, so we start looking around the congregation about the 25-minute mark. I've got to find someone falling asleep. Oh, there he is. There he is. And we're amused again. Or perhaps we take our devices and in the preaching, we're looking at the Facebook or Instagram or Twitter. You see, we replace contemplation and meditation with amusement. 
But I suppose that any significant advancement in art, science, music, literature, or theology comes as a result of some level of contemplation. Contemplation can, get, can bring us great insight and important life-transforming understanding in many areas, especially when that contemplation comes from an, an imprisoned, inspired apostle. So the way I've uh, outlined the uh, way I've drawn out the outline this morning, I believe that Paul is giving us some of his deepest reflections on life and death in this text. So first, we must contemplate the meaning of life. That's what he is saying in verse 22. Look down in your Bible at verse 22, Philippians 1, 22. He says, if I am to live in the flesh, that means... Fruitful labor for me. First, he contemplates the meaning of life. He'd already done this up in verse 21, just before this, when he says, For to me, to live is Christ. Okay, so verse 21, the meaning of life for Paul is Jesus Christ. And uh, all throughout the book of Philippians, especially in the Christ sections, where he's going on and on about Jesus Christ, he will explore this idea of what meaning uh, or what life for Christ means to him. There's another place he does this other than uh, chapter 2, which is a place we could go, but look in your Bibles at Philippians 3, verse 7. Philippians 3, verse 7. I'll read a few verses. You follow along here. But Paul is... Uh, giving a further expansion of what living for Jesus means to him. Philippians 3, 7. But whatever gain I had, I counted loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I might gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him, Jesus, and the power of his resurrection and may share in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible I may attain unto the resurrection of the dead. Not that I've already obtained this or am already perfect, but I press on to make it my own because Christ Jesus has made me his own. Brothers, I do not consider that I've made it my own, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and straining forward to what lies ahead, I press on to the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. To live is Christ means Uh, For Paul, that knowing Christ is his most important life pursuit, that I may know him. To live as Christ means that gaining Christ is worth the loss of every other thing that Paul could boast in or take joy in. Jesus is better than all of that, and I gladly exchange it for Jesus. To live as Christ also brings Paul a willingness to suffer like Jesus in order to partner with him. And it means not resting content in his current knowledge of Jesus, but pressing on to lay hold of Christ further. That's what Paul means when he says to live as Christ. Going back to our text in verse 22, I think he looks at this topic a different way. What does it mean? To live for Christ, for Paul. In verse 22, in the beginning part of this, this verse, I think Paul is saying, since life is for him, since life is for Christ, Paul expects that remaining in a fleshly body will produce fruitful labor. See that in your Bible? Fruitful labor. Those two words, fruitful labor, actually come from two Uh, to Greek words. And uh, there are different ways that you could translate them. Actually, I kind of like the ESV, and normally I'm right there with the translators, but 
There's some English translations which I think perhaps don't do this quite right, and this might be one of those cases. If you were to actually look at these two Greek words in your New Testament, you would see that the emphasis of the author is placed not upon labor or work in some of your Bibles. It could be translated that way. But the emphasis from Paul the Apostle is on the word fruit. Living for Christ is for fruit. That is the sole purpose of light. The sole purpose of fruit is why Paul continues to live for Jesus. And when Paul says fruit, I believe that he means souls. Lives impacted for the advance of the gospel. In other words, since Paul's whole life is for Jesus, he desires to impact as many people as deeply as possible as he can for Jesus. Life is for fruit. That's the meaning of life for the Apostle Paul. Remember several months ago when I was working through this text and studying it for a sermon I was preaching at that time. I came across this idea of Paul's life is for fruit. I was meditating upon it, that principle and the importance of it for my own walk with God. And it happened as a father, as as taking my son Andrew to a basketball game in Minnesota. He played for a community team there in Minnesota. He'd done that for several years. I remember I dropped him off at the front doors and I went and parked the car. And I was just thinking about this idea. Life is for fruit. For Jesus. I prayed as I meditated. When I went into that gymnasium, I was surrounded by hundreds of people who didn't know Jesus. I asked God to change my perspective. Give me a little different view of the importance of life. I said, Lord, give me fruit here for you. So I went into the gymnasium the second I went into the gym, I was greeted by two people. Uh, one of the players uh, used to be on Andrew's team. We had spent three years in the same league, and so he had been on Andrew's team a few times in basketball. I'd actually coached him in Little League Baseball a little bit, the pitching coach. This little boy, this, this boy's name was Christian, but he was lost. I remember seeing him over and over again. And I would often see him as a teammate. In this case, he was playing on the other team. I saw him, maybe you could see him as opposition. But instead, that day, God gave me the desire to see him as potential fruit for Jesus. Life is for fruit. And and may I say, I, I believe that they gave me courage to speak with him at a different level. So Paul contemplates the meaning of life, and he describes it as fruit for Christ. But next, he contemplates the end of life. In the the, the middle of verse 22, end of verse 23, I call it the, the end of life. He's been doing this all around. We talked about this last week, so let's look at it again. Verse 22b, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and to be with Christ, for that is far better. Although Paul only has two outcomes possible here. This is a difficult and complicated decision for him. If he had his way, this text says, Paul's desire, very strong word for desire, it's used often in your Bible, of of humanity's lust for evil things. Case Paul uses this strong word to describe a good passion. Paul uses it of his intense want or strong desire to be with the Lord. He says to depart. See that in your Bible? To depart. The, the words to depart are used figuratively in the New Testament to describe the death of a believer. Sometimes they're used figuratively to, uh, of sailors who are sailing off into a different location. They kind of depart out into the horizon they leave. The word is used in some cases also of travelers who are packing up their tents and moving along. 
So, Paul, the tent maker by trade, contemplates the temporary nature of his life and his soon departure to be at his real home. And the major point that Paul makes here, I think, is this. If he really had a choice between continuing to live on this planet for Jesus or to bypass that and go straight home to be with Jesus, Paul would choose execution. Because that is far better. You see that in your Bible? It is far better. And those two words describe a kind of an awkward expression that if you were to translate it woodenly, it would be something like this. It is much more better. How's that sound, English teachers? It's the reason they translated it far better. It'd be much more better. The whole expression is emphatic. And so for Paul, departing is far better because God had cultivated an overwhelming passion and love for Jesus in his heart. It's much more better because Jesus is there. So I'd rather do that. Perhaps in a moment of application here, I ask you this question. Do you have a strong passion to see Jesus and to get to know him more? I mean, this really should be a part of our fiber as believers, that we long to see him. Do you long to see Jesus? This past week, have you spent some time thinking, about how much you would love to see Jesus and what that will be like. Moment of application as well. At the bottom of your handout, you'll notice there's a gray shaded box there. And I want to suggest some things that you might try to do if you don't have this desire for Jesus. What should you do? And I'm just going to give you these things. Uh, I've got three bullet points. I don't necessarily have three points. Okay, but just write down anything the Holy Spirit would help you to come to this morning. What do you do as a believer if you don't have a desire for Jesus? May I suggest this to begin with? I think this is what our personal devotions are for. This is what our devotions are for. Yes, we go to the Bible to understand God's word. Yes, that's true. But more than that, we go there to rekindle our love for Jesus. You should daily search the scriptures for Christ. Perhaps that means you read whole books of the Old and New Testament to learn more about him. Start in Philippians, four chapters, pretty easy. Go through it and circle the name of Jesus every time you see it. And stop and think and consider, what can I learn about my Savior, my Redeemer? Circle his name Ponder his attributes. Rejoice in his person and his work. If you get through one of the epistles, might I tell you, you could go through the Gospels looking for Jesus. He's all through them. And once you've made it the whole way through, you know, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, I've learned everything about Jesus in these books, and go to the epistles. Go to the prophetic books of the Old Testament because they've got a lot about Jesus too. And when you get the whole way through all of those books, might I encourage you to go find a systematic theology. Say, I don't even know what that is. It's a book about doctrine. You say, I don't even know what book to begin with. I would say, come ask me. I've got a few recommendations for you. Or ask some of the men in the church or the women in the church who are students of the scripture, go to those theology books and go straight to the Christology section, the section about Jesus, and read it with an open Bible. And learn as much as you can about our wonderful Savior, Jesus Christ. Don't rest in what you already know. Don't be content with your present knowledge of Jesus. Learn more about him. And when you have enough knowledge about Jesus that you could teach the class on Christology, go back in again and learn more about him.
Spend time every day reminding yourself why you love him and what you love about him. You might even review your own failures. Not to grow weary and to endure self-inflicted punishment. But you do this so that you might learn to love your Savior and Redeemer more. If you have grown cold in your love for Christ, it might be because you are not constantly reminding yourself of your own sinfulness and the spectacular holiness and righteousness that is found in the person and work of Jesus Christ. To be with Jesus, to depart, is far better. Paul is not frightened by the end of his life because that's when he will finally see Jesus. And so from his prison room, Paul contemplates life. He turns it over, the meaning of life. Life is for fruit, the end of life. That's far better because Jesus is there. But then third and finally, Paul also contemplates the reasons for life, verses 24 through 26. The reasons for life. Look down in your Bible, verse 24. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and join the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Although Paul contemplates departing to be with Jesus Christ, he realizes that God still intends for him to use his gifts for the church. Actually, Paul's convinced of this, the text says, and he knows that he's going to remain and continue on in this, on this planet for at least a short time. So Paul has his own desires to depart and be with Christ, but he submits his own desires to what was more necessary for other believers. Okay. In this way, I think Paul, in these verses, is a good example of Jesus. Because in just the next chapter, in Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we're going to learn about Jesus. And what we're going to see about Jesus there is that Jesus continually submitted himself to the point of death for the spiritual good of all other people. But instead of God asking Paul at this time to die for the spiritual good of other people, he actually asks him just the opposite. He wants Paul to live for Jesus. To live for Jesus. Last week in the evening service, I asked you an important question. I said, would you be willing to die for your Lord? If you remember, I used the examples of Nicholas Ridley and Hugh Lattimore who fueled the fires of the Reformation by their willingness to die for Jesus. This morning, I have another important question to ask you. And that is, would you be willing to live for Jesus? Live for Jesus. Would you be willing to spend the next 40 years of your life dealing with whatever Christ brings into your life for him, for God? Would you be willing to endure a prolonged sickness if necessary, if that's what God wanted to use to see his name honored and glorified in the person and work of Jesus Christ to be magnified on this planet? Would you be willing to endure a family tragedy if necessary so you could point people to Jesus? Would you be willing to pray in your bread daily for the rest of your years and serve God in some missionary endeavor if that's what he wanted to use to see his son magnified in your life? Would you be willing to, this week, endure affliction or or verbal abuse at work or at school so that Jesus Christ would be honored and glorified in your life? Would you be willing to live for Jesus? I'm not talking about continuing to exist. Okay. Yes, preacher, I'll keep breathing and eating, especially eating. Sign me up for that one. I, I got like two choices. Die, live, I'll continue to breathe and eat. For Jesus, 
I'm not talking about that. I, instead, Paul is talking about the activities of a long, hard process of living a life for Jesus Christ. He is not talking about a few decisions that we make. But he is talking about laughter and sadness. He is talking about spiritual victories and failures. I think Paul is describing here the youthful vitality of young men and young women who commit to serve God in this church. But he's also talking about the dedication of hard-working, middle-aged men and women who are still committed to serving Jesus. Sure, they're soaked up to their eyeballs in caring and nurturing their children. Five of them, or however many there are. But even in the midst of their middle-aged years, they keep their focus and they say, you know, living is for Jesus. And so as I nurture these kids and love these kids, I want to make sure they're growing in their relationship to the Lord. They're involved in church. It's the the hard-working dedication of middle-aged men and women as well. I think he's also describing, though, the declining health of an elderly believer who is still relentlessly committed to the advance of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Through all of this, living is Jesus. If we remain in the flesh, it means Jesus. Now, looking back down into your Bible, Paul specifically gives two reasons that he continues to live in the flesh. Look first at the end of verse 25. Reason number one for Paul to keep on living is for the progress and joy of other believers. He says that. Look at the end of verse 25. This is a reason for your progress and joy in the faith. In this little phrase, Paul reveals some of the most important fruit that he is convinced that God will work through his continued existence in the flesh. He knows that If he lives, he will be used by God to advance the faith of the Philippian believers. I take this to be him describing the fact that through his continued existence, the Philippian congregation of believers there would grow in sanctification, that they would grow spiritually, qualitatively and quantitatively. And that they, would, that they they would not only grow in their faith, but their joy in their Christian faith would increase as well because of Paul's continued existence. And so Paul says, I've got this desire. I really, if I could have my way, I'd really just get out of here, go be with Jesus. But God wants me to stay here. And the reason I'm committed to that is for your progress in the faith and for your joy. I know that if I'm released from this prison cell, it will bring you joy. And so I I guess I'm going to keep doing it. I'm going to keep serving Jesus. Paul's zeal here is for the spiritual growth of other people, and it's awesome. He's sitting in a prison cell when you could be contemplating how difficult it is for you, and you say, well, you know, if if I'm going to die, that means Jesus, I'm going to live, it means fruit. Not me, but fruit for Jesus. So I'm convinced I'm going to stay here, and I'm going to do this for your growth and your joy. Some of us, we come to the heartbeat of Paul like this. We say, you know, is this just the stuff of an apostle? Like, man, this is like awesome. I I wish I had this sort of perspective, these sort of reasons for life. I'd say, no, I think other believers throughout the history of the church have had this same rigid commitment to live for the spiritual development of other people. Uh, I want to use the example of Adoniram Judson for a moment with you. Adoniram Judson, I think, captures this. Adoniram Judson sweated out Burma's heat for 18 years without a furlough. Matter of fact, he was there for six years without a convert to Christianity. Enduring torture and imprisonment, Judson admitted in his journal that he never saw a ship sail in which he didn't envision himself on it. He wanted to leave. This perhaps reached a low point for him when his, his wife's health broke to the point where he put her on one of those homebound vessels 
fully knowing that by putting his wife on this vessel, he might not see her again, but it would at least be two full years until he would see her again. That day, in Judson's journal, he wrote this. He said, if, I, if we could find some quiet resting place on earth where we could spend the rest of our days in peace, I would be greatly tempted to leave. At the end of that same remark in his journal, this remarkable postscript, he steadied himself. And he wrote this. He said, life is short. Millions of Burmese are perishing. I am almost the only person on earth who's attained their language to communicate salvation. Would you live for the spiritual progress and joy of other people? This is a call of all believers. I think especially anyone per, any person contemplating missionary service or full-time ministry. That's why we live. That's why we're here, for fruit. So that people would grow in their relationship to the Lord and so that their joy would be increased. It's not self-centered at all. But that leads us to a second reason found in verse 26. That's how I take verse 26. It's uh, almost a, a purpose that results out of that. But look at verse 26. Reason number two, for other believers to boast in Christ. If Paul is going to keep on living, which he's convinced he will, it's so that other believers will boast in Jesus. Verse 26 says, So that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. This is Paul's ultimate purpose in living and serving the Philippians. The reason that he knows it is better for him to continue to live. If and when he is released from prison, he knows that the Philippians' glory will abound in Christ Jesus. Now, to understand the phrase and to properly preach, we've got to look at some of the words. First of all, the word glory is often translated in your Bibles as boast or rejoice in many of the translations. But it has a little bit of a deeper meaning than that. Because in in many of its New Testament occurrences, when you come across this word for glory, it means something like putting complete or full confidence in someone. Okay, So Paul knows that if, if he is delivered from his prison room in Rome, it will result in the Philippian believers having more confidence in God. So imagine this whole scenario from the Philippians' perspective. It's been four years that Paul's been in prison. Two in Caesarea, two in Rome. Things look bad. But one day he's released. One day Christ released him. It wasn't Paul that got himself out of that prison cell. He couldn't arrange it. He couldn't manipulate Caesar. Christ did that. Look what Jesus did for Paul. I like what one commentator, Walter Hansen, how he describes this. He says, Christ is the ultimate reason for boasting. And Paul's mission is the specific occasion for it. You see, men and women, they're not boasting in Paul. They're boasting about what Jesus did for Paul. So Paul says, you know, I'm going to keep on living existence, I'm going to be released from the prison cell. Why? Because you're going to have more confidence in God. You're going to boast to others about what he is doing, how he rescued an apostle from prison. And so I'm here that more and more people would boast in the person and work of Jesus Christ so that other believers might put full confidence in him. Perhaps you're here this morning and you have a past. Or reputation that you're not proud of. You were immoral. And everyone knew it. Or everyone thinks of you or thought of you as a self-centered person at school. Or at church. Or you've had a problem with anger. Let God deliver you. So that when other people look at you. And they see the transformation. They say, not look at what so-and-so did to help themselves. 
They say that sort of transformation can only have been worked by God. Look what God did to rescue that person. The full confidence, the power, and the authority of God. Maybe there are some young people here today. You're kind and polite, submissive to your parents' decisions and their will, but it doesn't go any deeper than that for you. You should long for Jesus, for fruit. And you should live so that others might progress and have joy in boasting in Jesus because of you. They look at you as a young person, they say, look what Jesus, look what Jesus is doing in the life of that young person. As we close today, I'm I'm going to give you a few quiet moments to contemplate the nature of your own life, its meaning, its end, the reasons for it. And I'll ask you to evaluate what you're in this life for. Are you in it for Christ? For fruit? For souls? When you go to work, are you there for Christ? When you volunteer at the hospital, are you in it for him? When you walk around the house interacting with your, and interact with your neighbors, are you in that neighborhood for Christ? When you commit to lead that Bible study in the jail or in the nursing home on a Sunday afternoon, when every sane believer is sleeping or watching football, you're there for Jesus. Men and women, are you in it for Christ? Let's pray together. Father, as we contemplate the true meaning of life, for believers of Jesus Christ. Lord, we thought last Sunday evening's sermon was hard. Would you be willing to die for Jesus? But then we're confronted by Paul's words in this text. And the question that perhaps captures those words, would you be living to live for him? Lord, may we truly be able to examine our life, and in this quiet moment of contemplation, would you remind us of the true meaning of life? Life for Christ is for fruitful labor. And would you remind us of the reasons why we continue to exist for the spiritual progress and growth of believers for their joy in Christ, and so that they might boast in Jesus Christ. And Lord, help us to live our lives for Christ. In Jesus' name, amen.